0: Chapter Twelve of The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meggs. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Medford River. Cousin Tom was giving rapid directions as they went out to the waiting automobiles. I will go on with Jasper, and we will pick up some men from the farms as we pass. Anthony, you had better come with Oliver. We shall want to crowd in all the farmers we can. What is it, Polly? You want to come with me. I suspect you think you are going to keep your father out of danger, and I think the same of you. There is room in front here between us. Jump in!' The engine grumbled and roared, and the first car slid away into the shadows. "'Get in,' said Oliver curtly to Anthony Crawford, while Janet opened the door of the second motor and slipped to the far side to give him room none of the three spoke as they went down the drive behind cousin tom as they came through the gate they could hear faintly the wild clanging of the bell in the valley below oliver was too much occupied with his driving to have any other thought janet was awed into silence by the alien presence at her side but anthony crawford in that same husky broken voice suddenly began to speak, as though he were following his thoughts out loud. "'I don't know why I came back to Medford Valley,' he said. I had lived through every sort of thing since I went away, but I was making good at last. Martha—that's the girl I married, she was a miner's daughter—had helped me to go straight. I was working in a mine, harder work than I had ever dreamed of in my life. It was good for me, yet I kept telling myself that it was being in prison perhaps it was but i had forgotten that prison was the place where i ought to be oliver tilted back his head that he might hear better but his only answer was an inarticulate sound like a mutter of agreement to reach the valley as soon as possible and without mishap was more important to him at that moment than explanations but janet looked up with round wondering eyes eager to hear the rest I kept thinking how it was here at home, so green and clean and peaceful, not like that stark bare mountain country where I seemed to be working my whole life away. I told myself that a certain portion of Medford Valley belonged to me, that I could come back and live a life of dignified idleness if only I had my rights, if only Jasper would give me what was my own. But it wasn't true. You knew that he wouldn't keep what belonged to you burst out Janet. I knew it wasn't true, but people love to deceive themselves, and I had to explain to Martha. She would never have come if she had known how things really stood. She was unwilling, even as it was. But I was so sure. I thought I knew Jasper so well, exactly how I could threaten him, just where I could hurt him most. Had I not learned when I was a boy how proud and sensitive and generous he could be? I was as successful as I had hoped to be, but I wanted more and more, and see where it has brought me in the end." It seemed a relief to him to confess the very whole of his wrongdoing, to leave hidden no single meanness or small-souled thought. It was as though, in the clean night air, in the face of two just and clear-seeing companions, he wished to cast aside all the wrong of the past before making a new beginning. I am going away," he said. It isn't because I found that my plan didn't pay as I had hoped it would. It is because I was happier back there in the West, serving out a sentence at hard labor, learning to live by the work of my hands rather than by my dishonorable wits. I can look back over my life and see just where my honesty began to waver. Just when I first compromised with my own conscience, and persuaded myself that something was fair and honest when I knew it was not. We had all the same chance, Jasper and Tom and I. Look at them and look at me. You may wonder why I say all this to you. Perhaps it is because you alone saw through me, dared to tell me that I had no confidence even in my own claims, called me a man of straw and a boogie. Well, after tonight I am going back to be a real man again." For the first time Oliver slackened the speed of the car and nearly stopped in the road. "'Do you want to go now?' he inquired shortly. "'We can take you to the station if you do. They don't need us down there, as they do the others.' "'No, not now. I must know what my criminal bungling has amounted to first. When I have seen the flood go down, then it will be time to go. I want to see this thing through.' They had straightened out into the level road, and were forced to drive more slowly, for the highway was no longer empty. A big tractor was lumbering ahead, farm wagons turned out for them to pass, and hastily dressed men were thronging alongside. Two of them jumped upon the running board, but seeing who sat in the car muttered some imprecation and dropped off again. Anthony Crawford stood up and opened the door. "'I'll walk.' he announced briefly, load in all the men you can carry, you will need every one. Janet climbed over to the place beside her brother, and the tonneau filled up with men, who crowded the seats, clung to the step and the fenders, and sat in a row across the back of the car. They came to the end of the road at last, where in that place that had been so empty and quiet half an hour ago, there was now gathered a surging crowd of men. Of horses, tractors, automobiles, and wagons. Oliver could see, on a knoll above the others, Polly standing with two farmers' wives, the only women there. At first he could not see the water, but as they pressed into the crowd, he caught sight of the broad pool, dark even in the moonlight. It was over the road now, through the fence, and had crept halfway across the stretch of grass before John Massey's door. Tom Brighton's white-clad figure was going back and forth among the men. But it was Cousin Jasper, standing high above the others on the seat of a wagon, who was directing operations, and getting this confused army of workers into rapid organization. Tom, take half the men to shovel dirt and pile up the sand-sacks, and send the other half back to the sand-pits to fill them. Clear the road so that the wagons can go back and forth, Henry Brooke, take out your horses and join your team with Johnson's. The tractor can pull two wagons, and we need four horses to each of the others. Now go to it, and bring the sandbags as fast as they can be filled. We can't save John Massey's house, but we will build a dam to hold the water a hundred yards back, where the ground begins to rise. And remember, you can't be too quick if you want to save the valley. Oliver took off his coat and jumped out of the car. Go over where Polly is, he told Janet. I am going into this game with the others." He was in every portion of it as the night wore by, never quite knowing how he passed from one task to another, but following orders blindly, hour after hour. He helped to dig, but was not quite so quick as the others. He carried the sacks of sand that were brought up, loaded high upon the wagons, but he had not the quick swing of the more sturdy farmers. He found himself at last on the high, vibrating seat of the heavy tractor, rumbling down the road with a line of wagons behind him, stopping at the sand-pits to have them filled, then turning laboriously to haul them back again. The owner sat beside him on the first trip, directing him how to manage the unfamiliar machine. But as they made ready for a second he ejaculated, "'You'll do,' and jumped down to labor with the diggers. Oliver was left to drive his clumsy, powerful steed alone. He saw the broad, semicircular wall of piled sandbags, banked with earth, rise slowly as the men worked with feverish haste. He saw the water come up to the foot of it, seem to hesitate, and then creep up the side. He saw suddenly, just as they had all stopped to breathe, a long portion of the dike begin to tremble, then cave in with a hideous sucking crash that shook the ground under them. He saw the flood of muddy water come roaring in, and sweep against the painfully built rampart which swayed and crumbled to its fall. In a wild turmoil of running, shouting men, backing wagons and rearing horses, he managed to extricate the clumsy monster that had been put under his care, brought it laboring and snorting out on higher ground, and fell to work again the barrier they had set up with so much toil was tumbling and collapsing in great gaps where the hungry current flung against it but it held just long enough for them to raise another wall longer higher firmer than the other and built with the frantic haste of desperate men the hours went by it was long after midnight with the sky growing pale for the morning once or twice oliver had seen anthony crawford working among the rest carrying sacks of sand, jostled and cursed by the men about him, but in spite of their abuse, toiling steadily onward. When the dike collapsed and the men ran for their lives, one wagon lurched off the road. Its driver was flung from the seat and caught under the wheel, while the horses, having jammed the tongue against the bank, reared and plunged helplessly. Oliver saw Anthony Crawford run out, with the swift, muddy water flowing knee-deep around him, Watched him extricate the man, drag him to the seat, and back the frantic horses away from the bank to bring them struggling through the water to safety. There was no time for words of commendation. Both men at once went back to their task of carrying sacks as the slow building of another wall began. Someone had built a fire on the knoll, and here the farmers' wives, with Janet and Polly among them, were boiling coffee frying bacon, and serving out food to the hungry worn-out men. Oliver had munched a generous sandwich as he drove down the road. As he came back again, he noticed a strange lull, and observed that the men were leaning on their shovels, and that the work had ceased. Tom Brydon, wet and muddy from head to foot, motioned him to come near. "'We've done all we can,' the big farmer beside them was saying, The sacks are nearly gone, and the men are dead beat. If she breaks through now, the whole valley will have to go under." The water was halfway up the side of the earth-banked wall, and was still rising. Here and there a muddy trickle came oozing through, to be stopped by a clod of earth, but otherwise there was nothing to do. To Oliver it seemed that they stood for hours, staring, waiting, as the water lifted slowly, rose half an inch, paused and rose again. It was three-fourths of the way up. It was a foot below the lip of the wall. The space of a foot dwindled to six inches. "'If there should be a wind now,' said the man beside him, hoarsely. Oliver looked back along the valley, at the arch of sky showing blue instead of gray, at the trees moving gently in a morning breeze that touched the hilltop, but that did not stir the still air below. He heard Tom Bryden suddenly draw a sharp breath, and he looked back quickly. Was that space above the water a little wider? Was there a wet black line that stretched all along the rough wall where the flood had touched and fallen again? He was not dreaming. It was true. The level of the muddy tide was dropping. The crest of the flood had passed it was broad daylight now with the morning sunlight moving slowly down the slope into the valley for the first time oliver could see clearly the sullen yellow pool of water the crevasse in the dike and john massey's little house submerged to its very eaves he watched the shining streak of wet earth that marked the drop in the water he saw it broaden into a ribbon and from a ribbon turn into a wide, glistening zone of safety, that proved to all the danger had gone by. "'We can go now,' said Cousin Tom at last. "'There is work enough still to do, but it is time for us all to rest a little. We are certainly a wet and weary-looking crew.' They had breakfast, all of the cousins together, at Cousin Jasper's house, where Mrs. Brown, having spent half the night wringing her hands in helpless anxiety, had seemed to spend the other half superintending the preparation of a feast that should be truly worthy of the occasion. The guests were all cheerful, and were still so keyed up by the struggle of the night that they did not yet feel weariness. Anthony Crawford sat on one side of Cousin Jasper, Tom Brighton on the other, while the three younger members of the party watched them wonderingly from the other end of the table. Everything for the moment seemed forgotten, except the old comradeship of their boyhood. The only reminder of the unhappy days just past lay in the atmosphere of relief and peacefulness that seemed to pervade the whole house. The windows stood wide open, and the morning wind came in to lift the long curtains and to stir the great bowl of flowers on the table. Oliver, hungrily devouring chicken and rolls and bacon and sausages and hot waffles with maple syrup, was saying little, but was listening earnestly to the jokes and laughter of cousin Jasper. After a day and night of anxiety, depression, struggle, and victory, he seemed suddenly to have become a new man. They were talking, the three elders, of their early adventures together but Oliver noticed that the reminiscences never travelled beyond a certain year, that their stories would go forward to the time when they were nearly grown, and then would slip back to their younger days again. Some black memory was laid across the happy recollection of their friendship, cutting off all that came after. Yet they talked and laughed easily of the bright, remote happiness that was common to them all. The boy noticed also, as they sat together, that Anthony was like the others in certain ways, that his eyes could light with the same merriment as Cousin Jasper's, and that his chin was cut in the same determined line as Tom Brighton's. Yet, no, there was something about his face that never could be quite like theirs. They had finished at last, and Anthony Crawford, pushing back his chair, came abruptly out of the past into the present. He thrust his hand into the inner pocket of his coat, and brought out some legal-looking papers, like those that Cousin Tom had locked away in the tin box. "'Here is the deed that you made out, Jasper, for the house and the land that you gave up to me. I put it in my pocket yesterday morning. It seems a year ago.' The purpose I had then is something that I would rather forget if I ever can. But this is what I do with it now." He tore the heavy paper into pieces, smaller and smaller, as though he could not demolish completely enough the record of what he had demanded. The breeze from the garden sent the scraps fluttering over the table and across the rug. It carried the round red seal along the tablecloth, and dropped it into Janet's lap. "'Tom will have to make out some official papers,' he said, "'but I want you to understand this fully, "'that there among those fragments lies the end of this whole affair.'" Cousin Jasper was about to speak, but Tom Brydon broke in ahead of him. "'It has turned out better than we could have hoped, Anthony,' he began, "'so that we can all agree to let bygones be bygones.' Anthony Crawford turned very slowly, and looked with those penetrating gray eyes at Oliver. "'We owe a great deal to these children here,' he said, "'and as for one of them—' Convinced that something was about to be said of him, Oliver got up quickly, pretending that it was merely because he had finished his breakfast and wished to be excused hurried across the room and slipped out through one of the long windows that opened on the terrace he could still hear anthony crawford's voice however in the room behind him saying it was these children who found the leak in the dyke it was oliver who thought of going to look for it it was oliver who saw through me saw that i had not a shred of honor or honesty behind my claim and told me what i was The boy moved farther away from the window, so that he could not hear, and stood, his hands clenched on the terrace rail, looking out over the garden, across the pools of color and stretches of green lawn, over the wall, and down the white road that led away the length of the valley. No matter what words they might speak of him, they could never make him forget how he had walked away down that road meaning to leave all this vaguely understood trouble behind him. Only a chance meeting, the bee-man's friendly smile, the interest of a story that had caught him for a moment, and all would have been changed. No, there should be no words of praise for him. The voices were louder behind him, for the three men were passing through the library, and cousin Jasper was speaking just within. We still have to talk over this matter of rebuilding the dyke, he said. We must have your advice in that, Anthony. Go into the study," Anthony Crawford replied. I must speak to Oliver for a moment. He came out through the window, while the others walked on together. Oliver turned to face him. I am going now," Anthony said quietly. I thought you would be ready to help me when it was time. Oliver reddened, when he remembered the promptness of his offer the evening before. "'Do you need to go?' he said awkwardly. "'When you're friends again with everyone here—' "'Even the men in the valley don't hate you,' he added bluntly. "'After what you did last night, I believe cousin Jasper will want you to stay.' "'If I let him tell me so, I will not go,' the other replied quickly. "'It must be this minute, while my mind is still made up, or never.' I will write to Martha to follow. I cannot even trust myself to wait for her. It is better that I should go. Better for them in the study there. Better for the community. For myself. Even better for you, Oliver, I know. Come, he insisted, as the boy still hesitated. My confidence in you will be less great if you do not tell me that you know it also. Yes, returned Oliver, grudgingly at last. Yes, I know it too. They drove away down the rain-washed, empty road, with the early morning wind rushing about their ears. As they climbed to the highest ridge, Anthony Crawford stood up to look back down the sun-filled, green length of Medford Valley. Yet he did not speak until they had reached the station, with the train thundering in just as they drew up beside the platform. "'Good-bye, Oliver,' he said briefly the boy knew that the word of farewell was not for him but for all that the man was leaving friends memories the place that he had loved in his strange crooked way all that he was putting behind him forever a bell rang a voice shouted the unintelligible something that stands for all aboard the train ground into motion and he was gone Almost every one in Medford Valley must have slept that morning through the long hours until far past noon. But by four o'clock Oliver had slumbered all his weariness away, and so had Janet. They were restless after their excitement of the night before, and they found the house very still, and with cousin Jasper nowhere visible. They went out to the garage, got into the car, and set off along the familiar way toward the windy hill just to see if they are there, as Oliver said to Janet. They came up the slope through the grass, and saw the blue wood-smoke rising lazily above them, unmistakable signal that the bee-man was at work. Polly greeted them gaily, for she, like them, was quite refreshed by the hours of slumber that had passed. Her father still looked weary, as though he had spent the interval in troubled thought rather than sleep, but he hailed them cheerily. All up and down the hill was a subdued and busy humming. For the day after rain is the best of all seasons for bees to gather honey. We thought we must find out what the storm had done to our hives, the bee-man said. Only three were blown over, but there must have been a great commotion. Now we have everything set to rights, and we are not in the mood to tell the truth for a great deal more work today. Are you too tired? Janet asked, for—for a story?" No, he answered, stories come easily for a man who has had training as Polly's father. I thought there was no one like her for demanding stories, but you are just such another. They sat down on the grass, with the broad shadow of the oak-tree lying all about them, and stretching farther and farther as the afternoon sun moved down the sky. They had chosen the steeper slope of the hill, so that they could look down upon the whole length of the winding stream, the scattered house-tops, and the wide green of those garden-like stretches, that still lay, safe and serene, ripening their grain beside the river. The bee-man's eyes moved up and down the valley, resting longest upon the slope opposite, where the yellow farmhouse stood at the edge of its grove of trees, and showed its wide gray roof its white thread of pathway leading up to the door, its row of broad windows that were beginning to flash and shine under the touch of the level rays of the sun. Poor Anthony, he said slowly at last, to be banished from a place he loved so much. And yet a person thinks it a little thing when he first confuses right with wrong. He drew a long breath and then turned to the girls with his old cheery smile. "'A story,' he repeated. "'It will not be like the others, a tale from old dusty chronicles of Medford Valley, to tell you things that you should know. We have lived the last chapter of that tale, and now we will go on to something new.' Oliver leaned back luxuriously in the grass, to stare up at the clear sky, and the dark outline of the oak-tree, clear-cut against the blue. Its heavy branches were just stirring in the unfailing breeze that blew in from the sea, and its rustling mingled sleepily with the bee-man's voice as he began. Once upon a time End of Chapter 12 End of The Windy Hill by Cornelia Meggs Recorded by Peter Eastman, 2011. Thank you for listening.